Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Huntington Arts Council's Conversations in the Arts. Tonight, we will be talking about musical theater. I'm Mark Cortade, Huntington Arts Council's Executive Director. I'm coming to you live from the comforts of my home in Freeport. Uh, I want to welcome you to tonight's Conversation in the Arts. Uh, we normally would charge, if we did this in the gallery, uh, a, a modest, modest fee to come in and take part in this. Uh, so in the meantime, until we can get back to more normal times, we would appreciate any donations you care to make during these conversations. There's a donate now button on the Facebook page. So please do that as a not-for-profit. We're all desperate for cash right now. So anything you care to contribute would be greatly appreciated. Uh, a little what's coming up next month on October 8th. Our next conversation will be Amplifying Voices in the Arts. This is a great, great group of people here. Um, I put out a call to the community. community. Jose Tudeven, uh, the founder of Colored Colors, put this together. He's going to moderate with Jeanette Berry, a musician, Dylan Brown, poet, James J.B. Barreros, multi-hyphenate creative, as he calls himself, and Joseph Sandarpia, uh, an artist. Actually, I just bought a piece by Joseph. Uh, also in October, we're doing something called an Arts Management Forum. This is more for organizations than individuals, but similar to what we do here. It will be a conversation on virtual programming and engagement, because a lot of us scrambled earlier this year to figure out ways to do things. So we will have Beth Chacoma Lashaz, Executive Director and Curator of the Patchogue Arts Council, uh, Museum of Contemporary Art, Long Island. Danny Higgins from the Executive Artistic Director of East Line Theater. Uh, Stephanie Turner, Director of Education and Outreach at Tilla Center for the Performing Arts. And that will be moderated by Kieran Johnson, our Director of Community Engagement and Development, Huntington Arts Council. So tonight, I'm very happy to welcome our panelists. We have uh, alphabetical by last name, Lisa Berman, who is an actress and singer, John Braudigam, a composer and lyricist, and a pretty darn good actor as well, Kevin Harrington, producer and director for Plaza Theatricals, and Yolanda Wins uh, from the Harlem School of the Arts. So welcome everyone. Thank you for participating tonight. Um, I'm going to let you get a word in edgewise, hopefully. And I will just go into some of the questions we have. Please, everyone, let's introduce yourself briefly and let us know about your interest in musical theater, why you do this. Um, anyone want to go first or we can go alphabetically? Or... I'll go first. Lisa. <laughs> well, my name is Lisa Berman, as you just found out, and I have been performing my whole life ever since I was a little girl. And since moving to Long Island uh, close to 32 years ago, I got involved with local community theater and I worked with a lot of different groups. And in 2001, I came and auditioned for Kevin at Plaza. And I've been with him ever since pretty exclusively. And I've had the opportunity to do some of the most incredible roles in musical theater with him, as well as hundreds of children's shows as well, which has been extremely gratifying to me to reach out to that segment of the audience as well. So that's basically me in a nutshell for the past 30 years here on Long Island. 
Excellent, thank you. I'll just put in a, a word here. Uh, last summer, 2019, Lisa performed two shows at the uh, at the Huntington Summer Arts Festival through Plaza Theatricals, right? One was Mamma Mia, but the other was Mame. And Lisa and I did a pre-performance conversation about yes, it. It was a delightful chat. And that might have been the genesis for putting this together. But you get a bunch of theater people together and they start talking and it just, is very exciting. Uh, why don't we go to Yolanda next, if you would unmute and come on in. We'll sure. do it first. Uh, my name is Yolanda Wins, and I am currently the Director of Music at Harlem School of the Arts. Um, prior to that, I was on the road as a background singer for 25 years. Um, singing behind artists like Stephanie Mills and Freddie Jackson, and, um, you know, living out of a bag in a trunk and um, decided 25 years later that I didn't want to do it anymore. So I figured out what what's going to be my next act. And um, it was vocal coaching. And I was vocal coaching artists to sin in my place on the road. So that's how this all began. And um, this is how I fell into musical theater. I uh, conducted a workshop on how to audition for a musical theater, for a show. And it was about a thousand people at the Apollo and the show was The Color Purple. And I had about eight students with me. And I said, you know, you use what you have. Here's, you know, just a photo of me that I photocopied from my printer. And you just go with whatever you have and you show them that they really need you. Well, six months later, I get a call back from Telsey Casting that they wanted to see me uh, to be a part of the cast of The Color Purple. Now, I was not auditioning for the show. I was just doing a workshop on how to audition for the show. So needless to say, if I wrote a book, that would have been a bestseller. Um, so then I was casted on the Broadway as uh, uh, one of the church ladies in the Broadway production of The Color Purple and then asked to do the role of Sophia um, uh, in, in the color purple. And then when it closed on Broadway, we did the first national tour. So that's later in life, uh, late thirties, early forties, when I got the bug for musical theater till then I loved singing, but, uh, never really acted, never really danced. And I always tell people I don't dance, but I move well. <laughs> <laughs> I don't dance and I don't move well. Put him in the back. Put him in the back. <laughs> I can put the sound. I can put the sound down and keep the harmony going. So, <laughs> so you know, after that, um, I wanted to do something in terms of giving back to community, and the opportunity came for me to be a part of the Harlem School of the Arts family, um, where I started out at, on faculty, just teaching voice. Uh, then the next year becoming chair of voice and now director of the music department. Excellent. Glad to have you with us. Um, let's go to John Brodegam next. Uh, so I'm John. I write musical theater. Um, I think I've Doesn't been doing everyone. You know? Well, <laughs> no. I think I've been doing theater for, I don't know, a very long time since I was very little. But um, I finished high school and then I uh, went to Berkeley College of Music where I majored in film scoring. And I had a great time and I love movies, but then I graduated and I moved back to Long Island 
And I thought, I miss theater. I want to go back to it. I didn't do much theater at all when I was in college. And I don't know, coming out of college, I, I had to get back to it. And then I started working with Danny Higgins on Prospero. And then it just kind of broke out from there. I've been writing so many things the past couple of years. Um, very exciting. That's all. <laughs> very good. Oh, there's there's a lot more there, but I, know, I'm sure. I'm sure. I, I will say I I was privileged to see Prospero um, at East Blind Theater. That uh, composer and lyricist uh, John, and it was really wonderful. And I hear you've been making some revisions and. I really want, we'll talk about getting this done again because I want to see it again. Really fantastic version of Shakespeare's The Tempest. Very contemporary, but very much, you know, classic musical theater mold. Um, I, can't, I can't speak highly enough about what he does. I'm very happy to have you with us. And speaking of happy to have, us with, have you with us, last but certainly not least, Kevin Harrington uh, and I do want to mention, uh, before I let you introduce yourself, one week from tonight, Huntington Arts Council will be doing its benefit, uh, and we're going to be streaming that via Facebook Live as well. Kevin Harrington is one of the honorees this year. He will be receiving the Harry and Sandy Chapin Legacy Award in recognition of all the great work you've done bringing musical theater to Long Island. Kevin. Legacy, it makes me sound old, Mark. I'm older. <laughs> Well, as Mark uh, mentioned, I am the producer and director of Plaza Theatricals, which I founded back in 1983, probably before you were born, John. Um, and we uh, present over 300 live performances throughout the tri-state area. I have my master's degree in educational theater with a concentration in musical theater from NYU. I completed the Commercial Theater Institute certification program which is sponsored by the Broadway League of Producers. Each year, they only accept 14 people. So I was so honored to be selected uh, for one of their yearly programs. According to my mother, my interest in musical theater began when I was in her womb. She went to see Mary Martin in the original <laughs> production of Sound of Music. And she was so overwhelmed with that show that she felt that it came through directly to me and even to this day, The Sound of Music is one of my favorite musicians. Uh, this is going to tie into something, and it's really a good segue into our first question here. I'm going to ask each of you to, to name an artist or artists that have influenced you to be involved in the arts and why. And I'm going to jump in and give you a little bit about my background. I mean, I grew up in Buffalo, New York, which is not known as um, a hotbed of musical theater. but Back that day, everybody had uh, original cast recordings. Everyone owned them. Every family had the record player in the living room. And you all were buying Camelot, My Fair Lady, The Sound of Music. And that's where it, it began with me. So I grew up listening to people like, you know, the great Mary Martin, uh, Julie Andrews, uh, Alfred Drake. I think he was a really big influence on me growing up. Like I wanted to be Alfred Drake and I grew to all of five foot six. So, um, you know, that sort of meant classical leading uh, baritone roles are not coming my way. Um, but, you know, there was, it, it was, musicals used to be more a part and parcel of 
the common culture, there was also a person I'm going to mention by the name of Ed Sullivan, who had a weekly TV series and every Broadway show would go on that and do a number and they would sell tickets. You know, the story goes that when Camelot first opened, uh, critics really were mixed on this show. And we'll get into this a little bit later with one of the questions. It, it, the book goes on way too long. But they were needed to sell tickets. They went on at Sullivan the next morning before the box office at the theater opened. There was a line around the block waiting to buy tickets because they loved what they saw. Julie Andrews and Richard Burton, uh, well, what do the simple folk do? Robert Goulet, if ever I would leave you. And that's it. So that's kind of what influenced me um, and brought me into this magical world called musical theater. Of any of you want to chime in? Uh, we know Kevin was in the womb with Mary Martin, but go ahead, Lisa. <laughs> well, you know what I'm going to say. You, you know I'm going to say it's Ethel Merman. <laughs> so Ethel Merman was, yeah, definitely the biggest influence as a kid and growing up. And one of the things that I got to achieve is getting to play Rose in Gypsy. That was like a very big deal for me. But also um, doing my own one-woman show about her. And luckily, my name rhymes with her. So I called it Berman Does Merman. So that was that was lots of fun to do. And yeah, but also um, watching TV and, and seeing the comedians like Carol Burnett and Lucille Ball, also huge influences just on 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 my comedy and 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 using that, you know, for my acting. And so I just I just adored them. So those are my three. <laughs> And I'll just throw this in um, with Plaza. Um, Kevin, sometimes, you know, the phone will ring and say, oh, you, you do this role. Would you like to come in and do, I need somebody to do a couple performances. And I, I got one of those calls and it was for Gypsy in, I yep, think, that's right. 2004. And that Lisa and I played Herbie and Gypsy opposite each other. And she was so wonderful. Like, you know, just like, what do I do? Just go wherever you go, I'll follow you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> it just, <laughs> It was great. We, had, we had a really good time. And it's and it's such a great show. I really love Terrific. that show. So yeah. Um, For me, um, I don't think it was really an artist um, that I can think of. It was really more of, um, of the experience of live theater. So um, up until the mid-1980s, Jones Beach Theater used to present an annual Broadway musical, which would run there for the summer. And I can remember when I was nine years old, guess what show my parents took me to see there? The Sound of Music, my first live show. And I remember it like it was yesterday. It was a magical experience. I was mesmerized by the stage craft. I can remember like it was yesterday, this, they had this huge turntable on the stage that sat out over the water. Back in the day at Jones Beach Theater, there was a moat between the audience area and the stage area. And I remember that stage revolving and Maria was up on that mountain and it was magical. And there I was, I was nine years old. And then um, those experiences continued. So going to Jones Beach Theater every summer to see their musicals was a big thing in my family. And then also going to see the Broadway musicals at Westbury Music Fair, which is now known as the NYCB Theater at Westbury. Um, but they would bring in Yul Brynner and the King and I. I remember seeing Zero Mostel and Fiddler on the Roof, Joel Gray and Cabaret. And I was so in um, absorbed with theater in the round, that intimate experience where the audience was so close to the actors, the actors were 
um, coming up and down the aisles to make their entrances, how they could create stage settings and props that worked in the round and how they um, uh, transitioned between scenes. I always found um, you know, just fascinating. So for, for um, a high school kid and an elementary school student, that was magical times for us. When I was able to drive, I used to go over to Jones Theater <laughs> actually a couple of days before the shows would open and I would sneak into the seating area and watch their tech rehearsals. Yeah. So, um, so it wasn't necessarily a person, but it was a theatrical experience that really called me to, to be a creative force in it. I, I just got to chime in. Back in Western New York, uh, Melody Fair was one. It was the theater in the round, and they were in Niagara Falls, which was just a stone's throw from Buffalo. And I did get to see a lot of shows like this and great people um, uh, uh, along the days. And you're right, as they came down, you could see them sweat coming down the aisle. <laughs> it was just a really close experience there. And um, some of the really excellent people that I was. You know, like a Zero Mistel doing Fiddle Around the Roof or Angela Lansbury doing Gypsy. It was just so vividly seared in my brain. I, that was, I was in my 20s at the time, but it was like, I'm so glad I went to see this. Um, yeah, it makes things happen. Um, Yolanda. Sure. Well, um, growing up in Bethesda Stuyvesant, um, I, we couldn't afford uh, muse, uh, tickets for extracurricular activities. Um, and I grew up uh, in the church. Um, so basically my experience has been uh, singing in the church and gospel music, but I was exposed to, uh, at an early age, um, opera because I saw women that looked like me um, doing it. And so Leotine Price, seeing Leotine Price, seeing Jesse Norman, seeing Kathleen Battle, I said, wow, I think I want to do what they're doing. Um, and then just, you know, kind of went into uh, voice lessons and things like that. But as far as musical theater in 1974, 75, growing up in Bed-Stuy, um, there was this young girl um, out of the community uh, that went to Cornerstone Baptist Church uh, in Bed-Stuy named Stephanie Mills. And she was about to premiere in the Broadway show, The Wiz. So that was my first experience of a musical. Um, and my parents splurged because it was the thing that the community did to support each other. And that experience opened my eyes to just the stage, the lights, the music, the dance, the everything. It was just a wonderful experience. Um, and then, you know, to have full circle, to, to be on the road, actually singing background for this, for this woman uh, as an adult um, and telling her of the experience. It was because I saw you on stage as a young girl. I thought, this is something I can do as a young girl. Um, and so from that point on, um, I started researching um, musicals. And of course, uh, you have the vaudevilles that I you know, saw back in the time um, uh, and, and uh, Burt Williams, of course. But then I was exposed to some women like Ethel Waters and uh, Lena Horne and seeing these powerful women and not only being uh, in major roles 
in musical theater, but taking on the stage where they were just not roles. They were involved in the production. They were involved in their intellectual properties. They, you know, and they were business women. And so um, that really sparked something in me on the production side of things. Um, so yeah, so those are my experiences. That's what I, I love listening because you can just hear excitement in people's voice when they're talking about these things. That's that's terrific. And you know, I, I do some lecturing on musical theater, and The Wiz is one of the most important shows of the 70s because it's the first time that a show on Broadway about black people had an entirely black creative uh, community behind it. Yeah. So writer, like, director, yeah. choreographer. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was finally. Well, it was it was the black experience of the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> so and for me, the Wiz yeah. was uh, the first Broadway show I ever saw so, <laughs> back in the day. So great, and it was just an me. I remember I was so taken with it, and the energy, and the excitement, the energy, and the experience, and um, it was it was a, a magical experience also. So I remember getting the cast album right after we saw it. Yes. And I believe it won a Tony. Yeah, it did. Yeah. yeah. It won seven Tonys, but it was the best musical of, of, of that year. See, yeah. useless trivia. What yeah. else am I going to do with it? This is my audience. So, John, why don't you come on in and tell us? Of course. Um, I'm a big fan of Stephen Sondheim, Alan Menken, Rodgers and Hammerstein. Um, Dave Malloy, if you're familiar at all, he wrote Great Comet. And he's got a new thing coming out based on Moby Dick. He also has this, this wonderful early work based on Beowulf. He always picks wonderful subject matter. You know, this um, it's public domain, but at the same time, he treats it in such a contemporary way. Uh, I also take a lot from, on the film score side, um, John Williams, obviously, you can't write film music without John Williams. But I'm also a big fan of Bernard Herrmann. Um, Bernard Herrmann, wow. Mark is, I love Bernard Herrmann. He's actually a big influence on the, um, the score that I'm writing for the Long Island Silent Film Orchestra. And um, let me see. If I had to pick, if I had to pick like a very early influence, I would say, um, I don't know if any of you are familiar at all with Joss Whedon, the film director. Yes, Joss Whedon, during the writer's strike in Hollywood, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, um, Joss Whedon, He's a film director and he got some of his friends together and they put together a small, I'm going to call it a movie musical. That's the closest description I can find. Um, the show is called Dr. Horrible Sing-Along Blog. And it's just a cute kind of Saturday morning um, about a supervillain starring Neil Patrick Harris and Nathan Fillion. And it was so... I, I can't find a good way to describe it. I enjoyed it so much, you know? at that young age watching this and having it come out in pieces every week almost like a television show it was wonderful and my first my first musical that i wrote when i was in high school many too many years ago was called captain canada and it was a it was a silly comedy about a canadian superhero and it was so heavily based on dr horrible that early online musical theater but that's that's very contemporary stuff, yeah. So that's terrific. Um, I'll, I'll tell you. Um, I think it was the production of Antigone hmm. at Eastline, right? You wrote, you actually wrote music for the chorus, and yeah. you, you played in uh, the music for that. 
And that's where I like accosted this poor guy after the performance. Hi, I'm the, the executive director of the Huntington Arts Council, you know, and we have a grants program. You really should apply to this. And here's my card. Well, by the way, you know, I could tell you, I could hear like, this guy knows Maury Yeston. This guy knows Stephen Sondheim, like backwards and forwards. I could hear it in what was in the music. And he was very nice to me. He didn't look at me like I had four heads, only three. But, you know, and he started, yes, and this part right here, Maury Yeston, and he played something. Uh, I really like that. I have a lot of respect for people who want to be involved in theater, want to be involved in musical theater, that actually know about musical theater. You know, there's sometimes you see something and you wonder, what are they doing? Why are they doing that? Don't they know um, any of the history? Because uh, there's a great, we'll get into some of this later on, but we'll go to the next question, which is, um, I'm going to ask you, tell us some of your favorite musicals and why. In some ways we already have, but we can get into it a little deeper. Um, are there any particular roles that are your favorites? Are there lesser known works that are particular favorites of yours? Um, I'm going to chime in with this because it has been mentioned. For me, it, it all started with the Rodgers and Hammerstein canon. Everything they did, I, you know, even the lesser ones, there's e even their B musicals are a lot better than most people's A musicals. Uh, needs some work, but of, of the Rodgers and Hammerstein, uh, Carousel and South Pacific, I think are two of my all time favorites, but like Kevin, I am a sucker for the sound of music. Oh. And if you look at the original 1959 book and, and score, not when they try to put the film on stage, because you can't do that. It's a film. Not, you, know, you, you can't, Maria can't be on top of the Alps. There you go. There you go. There it is. There you are. Um, that book is so well constructed. I can see people not liking it because of, well, it's, it's saccharine. Well, yeah, it is. But if you want to write a musical, look at that. Just look at that one. Um, but you know what? I find with The Sound of Music, and people have, have said that to me as well, it's so saccharine, but the people are on a journey and they're trying to find something to fulfill themselves in their life. And there's tremendous conflict in that, you know, um, as well. And poor Captain Von Trapp being a widower at that age, but what transforms his life? It is music. It is the sound of music that ultimately softens his heart. Um, it brings tears to my eyes just thinking about it. <laughs> You're preaching to the choir here, Kevin. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, and it's interesting because one of the favorite roles I've, I've ever done is Max in The Sound of Music, which is just a terrific part. Um, I did mention Herbie before, love that. My one and only leading man role that I ever did, and it was in on Long Island was in Brigadoon. I played Tommy Albright and I loved singing those songs. Mm. I didn't realize it is a huge role. You are not off stage in act two and you're singing big, legit numbers, one after another, after another. And I loved every second of that. Um, so chime in there. I mean, there's a lot there, but some of you have to have other favorites or I mean, some of this I'm, I'm pretty easy because my my favorite shows kind of go together with my favorite roles you know my favorite show is company it's i fell in love with company after the uh, the raul esparza revival and that was on netflix for a little while that was wonderful um anyway that's 
Company, Sunday in the Park with George, um, God, Sweeney Todd. I, all of those roles, I think, are my favorite roles that I would play, you know, to really chew the scenery <laughs> as a Stephen Sondheim, you know, character. But um, going off of Sondheim, I think Chorus Line, one of my favorites. Um, God, what is that thing I'm thinking of? Fun Home? Oh. Fun Home is beautiful. Okay. And I, I, yeah, I think that's all. Fun Home, Great Comet has influenced my writing a lot. Um, a lot of those roles too. Again, Great Comet, um, the main character, Pierre in The Great Comet, I would love to play. So many fantastic roles out there. I, I will mention, you know, uh, I do seem to stop at a certain era. So for something a little more recent to creep under my skin, uh, it, it takes a lot. But I have to say, I went to In the Heights and it was one of those, okay, I have to go to this because it's an important show. 15 seconds into it, I was like, this yeah. is fantastic. And Lin-Manuel Miranda, he knows his theater backwards and forwards which is, you know, you can't write new rules unless you know what the rules are and you, what works and what doesn't work. And I, I just was so taken with that. And then a little bit more recently, but it's probably 10 years now, the Book of Mormon, I just thought was just a great, great, great musical. And again, if you look at The King and I and you look at the Book of Mormon, they are constructed exactly the same way. Those creators knew The King and I. To, to be able to write that. And it's that Rogers and Hammerstein model. So um, ladies, join in. Well, I, I did mention Rose already in, in Gypsy, but I also have had the honor of being Mame in Mame, which we did last summer. And uh, Dolly and Hello Dolly, which um, hint, hint, I'd like to take another crack at that one. That was that was a lot of fun I've too. I've been trying to get the rights for Hello Dolly for a couple of seasons now. They're all <laughs> I know. And, we'll I know. <laughs> and as a man of a certain age, I want to do Horace Vandergelder. Oh, please. <laughs> so, just, you know, just a... duly noted. <laughs> <laughs> but so. speaking of Sondheim, you know, um, you don't really get to see um, a little night music that much yeah. on the island. I did yeah. one production of it, you know, about over 20 years ago. Um, that music to me is just the most haunting, lovely score I've ever heard. So I, I would love to, you know, get a crack at doing that one again. I was 17 and just out of high school and I saw the original cast do that. And then fast forward 27 years later, 17 years, whenever it was, I worked at New York City Opera when they did their production of that. And it was just like, you know, being there and watching them put it together. And then the, you know, the telecast was done of that. And it just, yeah, I agree with you. That's where, I mean, that's operetta, um, musical theater. You, yeah. You're not sure which side of the coin that one is on. And it does go on both sides of it, but yeah. I'm, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you probably can't mention anything that I'm not gonna like <laughs> have a soft spot for. Yolanda. I, I, I have an eclectic list. Um, for you. I have um, anywhere from Showboat, Ragtime, um, to Guys and Dolls, Phantom of the Opera, um, Chicago, Chorus Line. Uh, and then most recently, um, I enjoyed, well, I've got to put Color Purple in there. I, I, I'm in the show. Um, 
Um, but um, most recently, um, Hamilton enjoyed Hamilton. Mm. Um, you know, again, Lin-Manuel to just figure out how to make a boring subject, historical subject, exciting and enough for the kids. See, because me, um, I have to think of how do we engage the next generation? Otherwise, this art form is going to die along with opera, along with classical music. So um, I like to go to the shows that the kids like. So just to see and just to kind of stay current to um, how to keep the kids engaged. So there's Dear Evan Hansen, there's Waitress. Um, they're all good uh, shows. And, and my first show uh, that I teach the kids uh, ages five to seven is Sound of Music. You know, the music, uh, you know, the, it's, it, it, it's one of those kind of shows, you know, where you're like, oh, I love the music. It's just uh, catchy tunes. And this exposes the kids to musical theater. I got to throw one more title out there because it's a show that I saw. I think Irish Rep did it, and it was beautifully done in this small space with eleven people. Um, it's called "Take Me Along." It's by Bob Merrill, who all wrote the lyrics to "Funny Girl." Um, he, he also wrote the music and lyrics to "Carnival" and a show called "New Girl in Town." "Take Me Along" is a musical version of Eugene O'Neill's "Ah Wilderness," and it is delightful. It was unfortunately one of those other shows from 1959, Fiorello, The Sound of Music, Gypsy, and then there was Take Me Along. It starred Jackie Gleason and Walter Pidgeon and Robert Morse, Eileen uh, Hurley. It's a glorious score, a very simple story, and I, I wish somebody would revive that. That would have been perfect at East Line. I was, kept throwing that at Danny, and like, you gotta know this one, you gotta know this one, and it, it would work in a very small space with some creativity to it. So again, somebody out there who's listening, get to know that one, and you know, there's, there's hidden treasures out there um, that I think we would all enjoy discovering a little more. You know, the other side of that is I have a very favorite uh, light reading book. It's called Not Since Carrie. Now, the title is based on, um, it, it's a history of musical theater from the end of World War II up until Carrie opened on Broadway. And Carrie was at the time probably the biggest bomb to ever hit Broadway. It's a musical version of uh, the horror film Carrie. There's some dynamite parts in it. And there's some parts that aren't dynamite. And I think it lasted a whopping four performances. Um, Betty Buckley was the mother, which is a role. It is fantastic. You know, John, if you don't know Carrie, you should you should look at some of this. The I opening think number is fantastic. I think there was a week where I just listened to that opening over and over and over again. So it's it's an earworm, it's so good. And actually, we presented Carrie twice with our students in our performing arts school. So, uh, so it does have a, a little bit of a life left in it and um, a, almost a cult following. And um, high school and college students are really into it. Um, and we did it um, here in our studio series where we only have 70 seats. It was captivating. Um, I think originally it was done in London originally with the Royal Shakespeare started it and they couldn't figure it out. But Barbara Cook originated the mother in that. Mm -hmm. And there's some 
a gritty um, things you can find on YouTube of her doing it. You know, somebody must have snuck a camera in. Just well worth watching her. But like she walked away from it as soon as she could, which I guess tells you something. But part of why I get into this is, are there any flops that you particularly like? You know, anything that don't work. Um, and one of the, the, the things John suggested we talk about is what makes a piece of musical theater work or not work? And there are some things that, um, you know, sometimes work and sometimes don't work. I'll throw out two shows to you. There's a show called Rags, uh, which is uh, Strauss. It's almost like Fiddler on the Roof part two. What happens when they get to Ellis Island and to America? And it's not such a nice place. And you wind up, uh, act two, the big dramatic point in it is um, the young girl, you know, young Jewish girl finally gets popped a letter, get a job, and she gets a job at the Triangle Shirt Factory. And it, that horrific fire comes in. Great musical, right? There's, there's fodder for a musical. <laughs> but it, there's parts of it that are shatteringly beautiful. Part of the, I, I think the big problem with the show is book trouble. There's so many characters. And by the time you see something, I forgot who that was. And it just, you know, it, I think it, it could be reworked and simplified. Um, another show I'm going to throw out is uh, from 67, 68. I think this one won the Tony Award. Jules Stein, uh, Comden and Green is called Hallelujah Baby. It is a dynamite score. This is a show that catapulted Leslie Uggams to stardom. It also has a lot of what I think is book trouble. And Arthur Lawrence tried to fix that uh, again. And I, I just, I saw a production of it fairly recently. And I think it just, the fix didn't really work either. Uh, but there's such a great score in this one. And it, it's almost a shame that you don't get to hear things like this more often. Um, am I the only one that like just- Actually, one show that it was on Broadway, I guess about five or six years ago. It didn't last all that long, but I was very taken with it. Big Fish. Um, but I think that it was overproduced. Um, actually, the licensing company, Theatrical Rights Worldwide, now has a small cast edition of it, and they do it with like 12 people and virtually nothing on the stage. But the story really comes through. And I think the Broadway production, the story wasn't clear. The audience thought it was about um, Edward Bloom, the father in the story. It's really about the son and the son trying to understand the father and make sense of the, uh, his relationship with his father. Um, I found it very touching. I found the music great. It just, the story kind of got lost somewhere in this uh, huge uh, overproduced production of, of it. But, um, but it's something that, you know, touches my heart. Also, another show that you had mentioned, um, which is not revived very often, it's never been revived on Broadway, and I'm in places to do it, Carnival, um, which also has a great score and um, talks about and focuses on people trying to find their place in the world. So, um, so that's another important uh, piece okay. as well, and different people's personality temperaments that come through depending upon what their situation in life is. So I'm laughing at that because I, I, if you remember, I think it was one of the first shows that Encores ever did, and I think it was Anne Hathaway, 
and Brian Stokes Mitchell, which is formidable. But the New York Times reviewer had this very snarky comment, which I never forgot about. This has to be the only musical written for a brain dead heroine. Because Lily is so hard to get just right. That's you know? The There's only production that I or... ever saw that it really worked was at the Kennedy Center. Um, they did a revival of it. They did it in one act. They edited it. Um, really well done. Really well done. So I just wanted to add that a few years ago, I had the opportunity to be involved in um, a revival of the musical Skyscraper. Oh, wow. You know that, Mark? I mean, I'm Julie sure you Harris. must have heard of it. I had not heard of it until... The Julie Harris musical from 1965, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> it did not get to see the light of day, which was very disappointing to me because it was... It, I, I thought it was adorable, and I thought it was a great slice of, like, old-time New York when they were starting to take down the L and gentrify the city, and the mother part was, you know, sassy and had great comedic lines, and... So yeah, um, whoever was out there that was doing it, I hope you try to do it again, because <laughs> it was really, um, it was adorable. So Skyscraper would be my vote for there would, obscure know, musical. You look at some shows that were bigger hits that almost don't work anymore, um, Bells Are Ringing, uh, which is uh, uh, earlier than that, but it, mm -hmm. it's, it's a show that just kind of just doesn't work anymore. And, and that's too bad, you know, you, you've, uh, yeah, there's a great for an answering service. Yeah, what's an answering service? <laughs> yeah, we did it at Port Singers, but again, that was like 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, there's, I, I just there's so many things out there, and it's like the more I dig, the more I want to know. The, uh, the more the even in like some of the the worst bombs there are some very good moments in it. And like, they should have gone with that idea. Um, John, I'm gonna ask you, are there things that you think do work in the theater or don't work in the theater? One of the things in here, I mean, the chapters are, are very aptly named. One of them is called, uh, Don't Set Things to Music That Don't Need Music. And it discusses some of the shows, but also uh, there's a show called My Fair Lady. You know, Pygmalion doesn't need music. <laughs> But on the other hand, you know, Rockabye Hamlet didn't work. <laughs> so, you know, whatever rule you come up with, there's something that breaks the rule. Are, are there things that, you know, you've discovered, like putting musicals together that you think make it work or don't make it work? But do you mean subject matter? Or I mean, do you any, mean anything, you know? Well, you know, sometimes I joke with my friends that um, the way Broadway is going, one day we'll have Fast and the Furious, the musical, yep. right? One day, something like that, sure. But Holograms. I do believe, what's that? Holograms. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> or the land a helicopter on stage, sure. <laughs> oh, <wait laughs> but I, I really do honestly believe that if you have a good writer who adapts a story well, you can make a Fast and the Furious musical. I think you can. I'm not even, Fast and the Furious I'm using as an example. I'm not very attached to this. <laughs> I'm only saying that if you have a good writer who understands structure, who understands story, understands character, I think you can adapt most anything. I really do believe that. Well, yeah, you, you asked the question of uh, what makes a good musical. And for me, it's a good book, 
and it's good music. I don't need the bells and whistles. However, I do understand that we have to sell tickets. So you have to have, you know, the pyrotechnics and the, you know, the, the shock factor to all of these things. But if you are a pure musical theater lover, all of those things don't matter. And um, unfortunately to me, those ticket um, purchasers uh, are dying out. Yeah. Well, if you don't mind, Yolanda, you raise an interesting point about is a musical successful if it doesn't sell tickets? Can it still be a good show? You, yes, exactly. You know what I mean, is that we can have a wonderfully written show that doesn't sell tickets. Does it make it a bad I show? Seen, I have seen countless great actresses, great actors be turned down for uh, shows because they're not a name. They won't sell tickets. And there was a moment where anyone that won American Idol was in a Broadway show. And I was like, oh my God. I'm going to have big money because I'm going to have to train these people how to do eight shows a week. It's not just a one, you know, performance thing, you know, even on, on, um, on Broadway with Fantasia, it was like, ma'am, I'm going to need you to remember the number eight, eight, eight shows a week. Okay. <laughs> so show one, you can't like lose your larynx and they have chalk out on stage, you know, <laughs> man down. You know, so it, 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 for me, it's always, well, and, and I'm maybe dating myself, but it feels like now it's been about what will sell tickets, who will sell tickets. It's not about uh, the book. It's not about the music. It's about who can fill seats. Well, I think, I really do think that if you have a strong book, if you have a combination of good book and spectacle, I think that's perfect. Something like if we go back to Hamilton, you know, the big yeah. phenomenon from a couple of years ago, we all yeah. know and can talk about is yeah. Hamilton was spectacle, but it was also something new, but it was also had a, a good book. You know, at times I wouldn't say it was the most efficient book, but it had a strong book. Right. It, it worked so well and became so successful. Yeah. yeah. Well, even going back, you mentioned it earlier, a, a, a musical called Showboat. That was a spectacle when it first opened yes. in 1927, and it's based on a pretty good book by Edna Furr and Rogers and uh, Jerome Kern. Rogers, uh, Hammerstein and Jerome Kern did a fantastic job with that. And as we found uh, in you know the most recent Broadway revival, it still has a lot to say to us. You know, if you treat it with respect, there's a lot of of, of good stuff there, mm -hmm. um, and. You know, I'm going to go to the other side of that. When was it? A few years back when Spider-Man the Musical uh. was being put together. And of course, you know, well, okay, they're probably giving seats. I'll go to this. And like, you figure like for $75 million, you couldn't do, you know, and there were a few like, that's brilliant. That's got potential, but it was just, it, it just all didn't come together for some well, reason. It, it kind of goes to what John says, you know, mm -hmm. um, they're now trying to make musicals out of every TV show or every thing, it, and yeah. it just doesn't work all the time. Yeah. yeah, I think that's an important caveat is it doesn't work all the time. You know, I, I do listen to these more recent musicals because I music direct on Long Island, so I have to be up with what the kids are into. Sure. Yeah. Well, Yolanda, what you said before. 
I listened to Legally Blonde. I listened to the new Mean Girls musical. I listened to Heather's. And there, parts of them are imperfect, but there are some good stuff in there. There is, there well, is. My, my challenge with, I'll call them the new musical theaters, um, for me, being a vocalist is spoken word. It's not lyrical. It, 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 the music is very choppy and it's too many words and you trying to understand and, and, and everybody has this like sound, nasal sound to them. And it's like, oh my gosh, another musical with a nasal sound and a lot of talking. Great. Well, um, I'm going to read one of the comments here. And this is when you were talking about bringing in the American Idol kids to a show and somebody wrote, that's what killed Rent. You know, just putting in, you know, <laughs> putting in people who really didn't belong in a Broadway musical in, in a show that was foolproof. Um, and but, I'm not saying that these people could not do it, but get some training first. Just don't throw them under the bus. You know, they're talented singers does not mean that they can act and they can dance and all the other, and do eight shows a week. That is a beast. There was a, a problem that came up recently. There was a whole controversy. I forget the boy's name, but they casted this, uh, what would you call this guy, an Instagram celebrity, I guess? Oh, they, yeah. ca they casted him in Mean Girls because they thought he would sell tickets. And I have seen every analysis video ever made on this boy and this controversy. And I really do believe that he could have pulled off the role, but it is, it is a machine Broadway. And if you don't yeah. have the training, if you can't go there and be ready, you know, then it doesn't work. The and it can fall apart. It can kill a show. It can. So the only American Idol slash YouTube phenomenal uh, character that I felt pulled it off um, and I worked with him, he was in the ensemble um, when I was in Color Purple, is Todrick, Todrick Hall. He pulled off kinky boots and it was just amazing what he could do in that role, Lola. Um, but he understood, you know, he had had some training of that eight show a week beast. Mm -hmm. I think I think given enough training, you know, with yeah. time, somebody could do something like that. Yeah, but with I time. think that producers and these casting agents, you know, they just want a quick thing. Yes, they want it so, now. Yes. And so they, they just throw these people under the bus and God help, you know, their, their uh, ENTs, you know, they make a lot of money saving their voices. I'm going to throw out something here is I think, it, you know, the musical changed when the microphone came into Broadway. Mm. And you need a microphone, you know, you build a house the size of the Gershwin or the Minskoff, you, you need a microphone, just that size and the way they're built. Yeah. But also lyrics started changing. You know, lyrics became less and less important. You know, you used to be able to hear every word of every musical, you know, back, back when I was a boy, I'm, I'm getting so old and crotchety. <laughs> But, you know, I think that, you know, there is something that, you know, diction is extremely important when you have these just fantastic lyrics that, you know, that's just it. You know, when I'm training this, the, the students now, I'm telling, I need you to articulate your words, you know, fill the room with your voice. And now it's like, oh, my mic's not sounding right. I need a little more reverb. I'm like, really? What? <laughs> Mark, it's, it's, it's interesting 
it's an interesting point because it changes the way that I write too. I try to write more thematically and I will bring back, if it's an important lyric, it will show up three or four times in the same show in the same melody. So people, it sticks with them. You know, you really, sometimes you got to hammer these things over an audience's head if it's very important. But yeah. John, yeah. what we're talking about is what the old masters did. That's what Richard Rogers and Oscar oh, yes. I did. Oh, yeah. Reason, yeah. We are going back to, you know, very traditional pieces. Mm -hmm. Yolanda, I love what you said before. I used to tell my students, I'm a retired educator, um, but when I was directing high school and middle school musicals, I would enunciate, enunciate. I can't yes, hear you. <laughs> and passion. I want to see passion. Exactly. My, my and explaining to them, the when you whisper, it's whisper-like, it's not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I need you to whisper. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move one of the other questions up here because I think it, it's kind of germane to what we're talking about is um, discuss like a live pit versus using a track. Oh. And I think that this ties into some of what we're talking about here. Um, and I don't well, know. I'm an enthusiast. I need, I need a live pit. I need musicians to work. Um, you mm. know, that's, that's like saying, you know, don't get real dancers to do, you know, Fosse or, <laughs> you know, you know um, so I, I right now am going to go with live pit music. I don't, I know it costs money and I don't mind spending money. I'd rather spend money on the orchestra than the lights and the belt that. And I think along when was it 2008 when Lincoln Center Theater did South Pacific and they made the big deal about having the 40 piece orchestra in there. But you know, from the first part of the overture, you know, there's the little hairs in the back of my neck standing up. You could touch the sound. And it was, you know, you used to hear this all the time. And unfortunately, now Lisa, I know you've had to sing with, uh, with tracks. Oh, sure. And, what sometimes, sometimes with the children's theater, there was no choice. You know, that was part of the licensing agreement that it had to be done with tracks. So you learn a new skill and you go with it. And it is a little nerve wracking, but if you're able to get the track in advance and really work with it before you go on, then you'll be all right. But of course, live music is always much more. I'm trying profitable. to remember the show that I went to see. It was at Lincoln Center Theater and they had a, uh, a live track. So the orchestra actually went into the studio and created the track. Um, so it sounded live, but I can't remember uh, what show that was. Some of the tracks that you get with the children's shows, as Lisa said, some of them are licensing uh, restricted that you are required to use the accompaniment tracks. Actually, some of them are pretty good. There's, to me, there is nothing like a full orchestra um, every summer when we uh, present our outdoor musicals, we fundraise and we find sponsors in order to travel with, you know, whatever the show calls for. We've traveled with uh, orchestras that are 25 pieces or 15 pieces. My son is um, a Broadway musical director and conductor um, currently um, uh, because Broadway is shut down now. It is uh, not working that way right now, but, um, but it's, it's magnificent. Um, so, and I'm a purist also. And 
there, there's things as, and as we get, I did do some performing in my days. I, I wasn't always an executive director. You know, there's some days you feel like your voice will go to the moon. You can sing your 16 uh, bars in one breath. And there's other days where you need every bit of help you can get. You know, it's just not working. You have a cold. Uh, Kevin, I remember um, I, I did Mr. Snow in Carousel. And it was one of those tightrope walks because it's so high and I'm not a tenor. And I faked every high note. And you asked me to come in and audition. And I was slightly under the weather. And, about, and I croaked about, you know, two measures out and said, I can't do this. You know, I have to be 100% fit to do it. And if I would have had to do that show with a track, I, it, it, no, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Right. Well, you bring Sometimes, back you know, up. Physically, you have to do things. I was going to say, you bring back up um, that word training, yeah. you know, so that you can have your A, B, and C show and it sound like the A show, yeah. you know? Um, and then, you know, I tell my clients that I'm coaching, look, just don't want the gig. Make sure you can do eight shows a week because you might be able to knock it out the park for the audition, but that's just one show. You have to think, am I going to be able to sing this role for eight consecutive shows, two on Wednesday, two on Saturday, or two on Sunday, two in a row? You know, you have to have take that into accountability too when you go into audition. I think it's also important to differentiate excuse me, differentiate the problems between community theater and Broadway because Broadway is gonna have a much larger budget than a community theater. Oh, Broadway yeah. can have a larger pit orchestra. Community theater, I, I music direct community theater. So I really do believe that unless you're doing educational theater for children, there isn't much of an excuse not to have live musicians. Um, I remember I went with my brother God, this must have been last year, we saw a very small production in Queens of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, like a church basement, right? And if you know Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, the musical, it is a large big band sound. And they did the whole show with two keyboards and an electric drum set. And you know what, if that's your budget, but if you have good musicians who put the work in, then that's fine, that's gonna sound great. If it's a question of space, I did, um. When was this? This was last year at East Line Theater. If you know East Line Theater, it is a small black box, maybe 40, 50 seats. And we did family stage production of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. It was an original musical and we had no microphones and we had a live pit orchestra because we managed our volume. It's, I really, I don't think there's much of an excuse not to have live musicians. And it's also a reason to pay more artists. Isn't that what we're looking to do, you know, that's, to that's get it. more people involved? The work, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just going to read, there's a couple comments came in. There's one, uh, Lisa, this is directed to you from my friend, Judy Davidson, that she, she thinks she has seen you in pretty much everything you've done, including Young Frankenstein. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Thank and she you. May have been one of your first uh, subscribers, Kevin, but she just <laughs> loves everything you've been in. So I thought I'd throw that out there. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you. One of the other comments coming in here, I think will get us into another question from uh, Elena Lee. What are all of your hopes and wishes for musical theater on Long Island? You count, Yolanda. <laughs> um, especially when young folks, are, um, involving young folks, and in reference to developing new original works. 
you know, one of the questions uh, John posed to us was uh, about just community theater and discussing it. So uh, could, could we talk about that for a little bit? What, you know, would you like to see done on Long Island and how would you engage younger people? What new works, you're doing it, John. Well, sure, um, I'll start the conversation. So I think it's very important to have original works on Long Island. I mean, we can talk about Broadway up and down, but we're, we're here to talk about the community. Right. This is Huntington Arts Council. We're here to talk about our community. It's nice to compare it to Broadway, but very often Broadway has very different problems than we do. Um, I think it's important to have original works on Long Island. The problem is, is that the bar to entry for writing musical theater is much higher than the bar to entry for writing just regular theater. Right. If you're writing non-musical theater, what do you need? You need Microsoft Word right, and some friends willing to read it for you. To do original musical theater, especially on a small budget, on a community theater budget, then very often you have to music direct, you have to orchestrate, you have to find the musicians, you have to do everything. You take on so many more responsibilities. And very often a theater is not willing to I'm going to say to take a chance on an original piece, right? So I think, I believe that the answer is, I believe that the answer is in family theater. I do for original work, right? Because it's smaller budget, it's less of a risk to take a chance on a new composer. I think it's good to have things like, say, an original theater weekend. Theaters can do that. The only risk with that is that it starts to become niche. It starts to become, uh, what's the word, a, a novelty, right? Because then you have the original theater weekend and then original theater doesn't creep in to the rest of the season. You know what I mean? I think a lot of that also has to come down to budgets. You know? Yeah, I was going to say budget. Yeah. Unless, unless an author is coming to you with some type of grant or some type of backing, mm -hmm. it becomes very tricky. Um, you know, our audiences are, are the classics. Um, you know, they're not, it, 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 we can talk about it intellectually, but the bottom line is, is they don't come. However, John, to your point, I think um, Long Island is an excellent place to develop a musical and even putting it on in libraries and things like that um, and getting feedback from the audiences prior to writing it, having to have backers auditions, doing an equity showcase and things of that nature. I've often thought out here and get the show to work out here without the pyrotechnics and without all of those things with the audience and the actors and work on the transitions and the characters and the structure. Um, and if it works out here and you've worked out all of those glitches and you now have a fine product, that's when I think it's um, a possibility to take it into New York and do readings and things like that because you've worked out all those, those details. Big, and you know, big producers you know, or even, you know, medium-sized producers with medium-sized budgets, you know, don't have, um, you know, necessarily the budget for the developmental workshop piece of it. But if you've done that prior to 
to going into an equity showcase or something like that. Um, I think it's a possibility. Question about budget. Um, when you're budgeting a show and you're talking about the community theater, how much do you budget in for marketing, uh, promotions, PR, press? Because I think that that's important part of it that I, I think people may miss because if someone, especially when you're doing new original uh, uh, shows, how does the person even get a synopsis of what the show's about to show some interest you know, to the show as opposed to come see my original show? It might be good. You know what I mean? I, yeah, I've often thought that um, with what John was saying, for um, companies that have their own theaters and do seven or eight productions a year, to once a year put in an original um, and market even prior to that or as part of their subscription series mm -hmm. or having um, the authors come before, you know, Oklahoma is supposed to start a half an hour before, come a half an hour before, we're gonna introduce this new musical to you and build up some PR that way. I've often thought that that would be, um, you know, certainly an advantageous way of doing it. So, so most of your audience, would you say, if you had to look at the demographics of your audience, are they subscribers? Are they educators? Are they uh, musical theater enthusiasts? Right. They're mostly musical theater enthusiasts. And the average age for our main stage shows is 55 plus. <laughs> We're not bringing in the younger people. But so. uh, if you, but Eastline, which again was a small, um, they, they're physically not there anymore and looking for a home, which they will find after the world gets a little bit more normal again. But, uh, you know, John, uh, you had a very loyal um, subscription base there. Yes. Who would come to see, see things because they liked the work that the theater was doing. If you don't mind, there were a lot of points I got to respond. I got to defend original musical theater for a moment now. Um, in terms of budgeting, how much do you pay for rights if you're doing something like Mamma Mia or Sound of Music? You don't necessarily pay for rights if there's an original musical coming in. You might pay the music director, you might pay the composer, you might pay the writers a little bit, but whatever you're paying them, especially if they're just starting out, does not compare to what you're paying to do Sound of Music or Mamma Mia. Now, second of all, um, what you bring up about how Long Island is good for developing musicals, but then we'll bring it into the city. That that is true. I also think that it is dangerous to put Broadway on a pedestal. I think that theater can exist outside of New York City. Good Agreed. theater can exist outside of New York City. Agreed. That New York City cannot be the end of the road, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. But I do agree with you that it's, it's untenable to have a theater that does all original shows. Kevin, you said something about how a theater that does maybe six or seven shows a year, they put in one original show. Or what I was saying before about how you take a chance on a new composer who wants to write an hour long, half hour long family musical. That's a good way to make a relationship with a new composer. Um, and what you said before about, I think Yolanda, you said something about marketing, about how do people know what the show is about, mm -hmm. right? How do people know they're going to like it if they haven't seen it before, if they haven't heard the cast recordings? Well, that argument and, fails and, when you talk. And I know, I know that costs money, 
Um, but now you save money from the licensing, which you brought up. But I'm not saying do the show for mm. people to see it. I'm asking just to market it, to, to say it's happening. Now, in terms of marketing, I mean, obviously you might lose some people if you're not doing Sound of Music and everyone, of course, has seen and loved Sound of Music. It's a great show. But people go to see movies all the time without having seen the movie already. They know no, the movie saying, trailer. They know the people saying, in the movie. I'm not saying to see the actual show. I'm just asking to market that the show is happening. That's what I was talking about. Because okay. people didn't like Sound of Music unless they saw Sound of Music. I mean, at one point, Sound of Music was an original show. Yes. And then people started liking it. My question is, how are you marketing the original shows just to know that it's out there? Not that you need a trailer to see what the show is about. That's not what I was talking about. I think an, an original show or new writers start like any new business starts. It starts with friends and family and word of mouth, and then it goes on. Yeah. You know, I had when I had um, consistent original shows going up at Eastline, I only had uh, until coronavirus started happening, I had a main stage musical, Prospero Live, and I had um, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, which was a family stage musical. And we were very close to putting up Johnny Appleseed in the park, another family stage musical. And we have the same people come back and see these shows who want to see the next new thing mm -hmm. because the quality is good. Yeah. The quality is there. It's there. And the budget is low because we don't have to pay for rights. Because Shakespeare is public domain. Uh, Sleepy Hollow is public domain. It's, it's there and it's doable. And I, I don't think there's any reason mus original musical theater can't happen on Long Island. Maybe it's the, yes, I was about to say maybe it's the training. Like I said in the beginning, the barrier to entry is extremely high. I orchestrate all of my parts. I print all of my parts. I music direct my original shows. I find the musicians. This is very important to me and I put in a lot of effort and some people are not willing to go that far. That's why the barrier to entry is so high for original musical theater, but it is worth it. It is so worth it. Which is why uh, I can appreciate the work that you do because um, I had this conversation with somebody, you know, there's a difference between being a creative and being a copycat. And I feel like uh, some people want to be a copycat because it's the easy way out. You're a creative that does, puts the work in, you got the training, you said you went to Berkeley, you know, you got the training and you really put the work in and you put the energy in what you do, which is why I'm saying it needs to be marketed. Just your story alone right there markets the original uh, uh, show. I'm going to speak. Kevin said something. And um, as, as the head of an arts council, we do have a grant program. I don't have nearly enough money to give away. So this is kind of a plea out there. We do need some more grant money that can come in and support people to do these things that, you know, John is the real deal. If you see his name on a show, go to it. Actually, go to John, it. I was going to say, when the world gets back to some normalcy, come and see me. <laughs> I would love to send me an email, Kevin. And uh, share some ideas. Sure. Send, the, send me an email, Kevin. We, we require in our granting is, is, is about how are you going to market this? You know, uh, if, you know, similar to the, if, if a musical doesn't sell tickets, does that mean it's bad? Maybe not. 
but if nobody comes to something, it, it, is it worth, you know, if you're going to go through the trouble of doing this, you desperately need to market it. What I, I'm liking seeing is, I'm kind of new to social media. So this is a whole world, you know, I'm from the prior I'm world. People are using social media brilliantly to market their pieces and to get the word out to pieces. And, you know, things like in a grant application where somebody says, well, we'll send flyers out. <laughs> You're probably not getting the check from me. Um, anybody out there has hit the lottery or inherited a ton of money, talk to me about a grant program because we can set it up and we can get more quality things funded. Uh, one of the comments that came, came in in the midst of all this was good theater can and does exist outside of New York City. And it sure is happening on Long Island. Uh, let's go, I wanna ask one of these questions here about discuss Long Island theater demographics and its influences on theater decision-making. I mean, Kevin said a little bit about it, of, you know, when you have an audience of a certain age, this, you know, they, they're pretty vocal about this is what I want to see. And that's what they're coming for. But also like uh, uh, casting, et cetera. Um, you know, East Line is one of the theaters that I just love what they do because they really cast blind. They cast non-traditionally. They cast by, you know, what's going to work and who's the best person to do it. And it doesn't matter about gender, age, color. Uh, it, it just, it will work. There's an inclusivity there. And I think we've got to get more of that uh, involved here. But are there certain shows that you know you'd like to do but you can't do because of the demographics on Long Island? Um, talk about this a little bit. Did I get too heady for all of you there? Well, I'm gonna sit this one out because I'm New York, Brooklyn, New York. Um, don't really know the Long Island market. Mm -hmm. uh, would like to get to know it, so I'm gonna come out and see us sometime, Yolanda. You know how to find me. I'm gonna throw some, something out there, like a show like 1776. Doesn't get done a lot because where are you gonna find 23 men? You know, and that kind of is a problem on Long Island. You know, you, you can get, and then you get people, well, I'm not gonna do the third from the left role. I do that role or I don't do the show. You know, th those type of, okay. John will never work with me. <laughs> but you know, there's another show that I love called Paint Your Wagon which has a huge male cast in it and maybe, you know, one leading lady and two secondary ladies in it, but a lot of men. I'd love to see this done, but people stay away from it. Um, even like small theater companies, um, you know, regional theaters don't do it because of the restraints on it. And this is where I think you could come up with some non-traditional casting ideas and things. Um, if there's any, any thoughts you guys have on this, you know, do the demographics, Kevin, could you bring off, uh, we were talking about ragtime. Do you think you could cast ragtime? I do, but we also bring people out from the city and we have grants to reimburse transportation and things like that. Um, yes, you could definitely cast that. Um, actually, ragtime holds a special place in my heart because I, um, I piloted the school edition of ragtime for Music Theater International, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. Um, so it was a very exciting opportunity to work with the authors and the MTI staff on that production. Um, yes, I think as long as we have the grant money and the sponsorships, we can basically do you know, anything. Once again, it really comes down to, to uh, you know, from a producer's seat, 
um, that you have to have the financial backing in order to make these things happen. So, um, uh, I, let's put it this way, Lisa, is, is there any male role that you would have liked to have had a stab at that you wish somebody would have put you in or something, you know, or anything that was a that you couldn't do for whatever reasons? No, I don't think so. I don't think there's ever been a male role. I mean, there's some songs that are, you know, typical, like This Nearly Was Mine is, you know, a male song and it's it's a beautiful song. So, you know, you can always take um, a song that you would not be able to sing in a musical. You, you wouldn't get cast at uh, for it because you're too old or you're too this or too that. You know, put in the cabaret act and that's the way you can get that accomplished. But yeah, I don't see, I don't see that there's any role that I felt like, you know, oh, I wish I were a guy, but I can say that it is there. Uh, most traditional musicals are very male heavy and um, they are very extremely difficult to cast on Long Island because mostly it's women. Okay. And what about that's diversity? Well, that's a, a question I wanted to get in there uh, uh, about inclusion. Um, if you would care to talk about that, you know, ways that theater can be more inclusive, although theater might be one of the art forms that has been more inclusive. Well, again, I agree, but go ahead, John. Oh, so I think going back to what I said before, if you want to talk about inclusivity, I think, again, Broadway and Long Island have different problems. Mm -hmm. If Broadway is going to say, have an all black cast for a show, then they put out a casting call and they might have a line out the door because they're paying very well and all these good actors are in New York City, right? Mm -hmm. If you're trying to do an all black cast on Long Island, that might be a little more difficult. You might have to search these people. You give me a call, honey. I can give you some <laughs> You just tell me where they need to be and they will show up. Um, it's, it's, it, it, you know, speaking for the Black community, um, first of all, there aren't that many roles for us. Um, I just happen to be the full-figured Black woman, so I'm always going to have the role. I'm going to be Motormouth Mabel. I'm going to be um, what's Queenie. Yeah, Queenie. I'm going to be um, uh, Chicago. I'm going to be um, Mama. Mama. Mama Morton. So, you know, even in The Wiz, I'm going to be, um, what was her name? Mabel uh, King. I'm going to be, you know, Mitchell, Ella Mitchell. So I was okay being the full-figured Black woman. Um, but there's not diversity in roles in terms of musical theater. And um, they call it equity, but it's basically that you need to have one black male or one black female in the ensemble. Oh, Yolanda, uh, it's your phrasing is that there aren't many roles for you. And this reminds me a couple months ago during the George Floyd protests, I sat down and I tried to do as much research as possible, you know, try to absorb. <laughs> and I came across this wonderful video. Um, the Hollywood reporter was doing a round table about um, they were interviewing Tony nominees from that year. And it was the year that Hamilton was nominated and Leslie Odom Jr. I, I, I believe that's how you pronounce it. Leslie yeah, Odom Jr. Right. I've only read it. That's the problem is that Leslie Odom Jr. was sitting at the table and they were talking about inclusionary casting. 
And he said that coming off of Hamilton, he was surprised that Hamilton was such this phenomenal success, but he was not being offered as many roles because they simply didn't exist. He was talking about how, and other people at the table were bringing up, um, what about gender blind casting? What about color blind casting? And he said, he called them reimaginings. And I love that term. He said, reimaginings are great, right? We can have a black Harold Hill, a music man. We can have a, a um, what's the one they just did? Uh, black Billy and Carousel, right? He said that reimaginings are great, but what's even better are shows written for the minority experience. You know, it's- so it, it starts with the writers. I think it starts with the writers. Who has often visited the Long Island community to do concerts. Um, he was maybe the second or third black uh, phantom, you know, but it's, it, you know, it, that's how we make history. You know, the first black this, the first black character of this, um, as opposed to a show that actually uh, portrays us for who we are now. And I'm yes. not talking about the mammies, the, you know, the, the black face, all of those things in the past. There aren't, when I say there aren't really that many roles for us, I'm talking about in a certain light to where we should be in this day and age. Um, I remember, you know, when I had an agent and I had a, um, a manager and they started sending me, now at this time I was, I was just barely 35, 40. They were sending me in for roles that some, somebody's mother that was 60. Now, granted child, I'm an actress and I want that money. So I'm gonna act like an old lady and I'm gonna get the check. But however, I, I'm young, I'm sprightful. I want that kind of role. And those roles were not available. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it does come down to some of the, the writing. Like, as we said, The Wiz was very important historically. But what was the first show uh, on Broadway uh, about the Latino experience written by Latinos? In the Heights. In the Heights. 2008. You know, well, you have West Side Story. You know, hold it. <laughs> um, the musicals were written by... Um, well, that's what we're leading. That's what you're going to That's That was how the... The industry founded, that's how the, the art form founded from well, Central it, Europe over here. You know, and, if we had more diversity in the writers, mm -hmm. in the producers, that's why The Wiz is so special to the Black community because we had the choreography, we had the music, we had the direction. Um, and so we, we look forward to those special times, um, but they're not often. Yeah. I, I think that then the question becomes, how do we get more writers that come from black writers, minority writers? How do we get more writers? And I believe that you have to make theater accessible to um, these minority audiences. You have to have more theaters in low income areas. You have to have theater for children from low income families or they won't be exposed to it or they won't write about those experiences when yes, they're older. Yes and no. Mm -hmm. I feel like Long Island could use some black writers. Yes, and it, I'm, it, I'm, it could, <laughs> yes. And so oh yeah. I, oh, I yeah. feel like the black experience is exciting and wonderful experience, but it's an American experience. I think we mm -hmm. get caught up in the colors and you know, 
I know for watching the community in the color purple, all dynamics came to the show and were touched by the story that was supposed to be a black experience. However, there are white women that go through uh, domestic violence. There are Asian women that go through, it's, it's an American story, yeah. you know? Um, and so I think it's not how do we find, they're out there. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. say, we're looking for you. Trust me, they'll come up in droves. Just say, it's an open opportunity for black writers, for black uh, 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 musical directors. You'll see, they're out there and good work. And it's not just about a black experience. It's about an American experience. It's about a human experience. And do you think it has something that came through? Let me just read this thing, go ahead. Hamilton subtitle is called An American Musical. Yes. I just, now, go ahead. Long Island specifically, do you think it has something to do with the demographic? Because mostly Long Island, it is these 50 to 60 year old upper class white people. It is, we have to be frank. That's what the audience is. Mm -hmm. But if you, I'm, 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 I'm hoping, and I'll be naive when I say this, if you expose them to that, I think they may like it. If but it's quality work, yes. I mean, it, yeah, I agree. Like it's just like you know, saying to go to the urban community and and expose them. Trust me, the urban community gets tickets to go see Lion King. They get tickets to go see the shows. There's not a problem of getting urban community to see the shows. Urban community don't want to see the shows because they can't relate to it. Mm -hmm. Now, they'll go see Hamilton because it's hip hop. It's spoken word. You know, it, it, it may be, you know, the uh, story about uh, Alexander Hamilton, but it's done in a way where it's hip. You're using that genre. It may be called a musical, but it's spoken word. It's hip hop, you know? So though that community can kind of get connected and actually learn history. How about that? <laughs> you know, but um, I think it's across the board is exposure. Yes. Whether you are white or black is exposure to the art form, period. Well, you brought up a very good point about um, that theater is a powerful teaching tool and it is the human experience. Mm -hmm. um, well, we're, we're hoping, the black community is hoping that we can change the great white way to something else. <laughs> Maybe the great American way, but you know, but that's what it's called. I mean, I'm not making this up. Th these are facts. These are things that we deal with day to day and it, it, it's it's a horrible experience because when I used to go to auditions, I stopped going to auditions. I was like, you know what? I'm gonna make my own thing and figure out how to market it and do me. It's gonna be the me, myself and I show. Um, when you go to an audition and you're seeing so many people at the audition for one role and trepidation hits you because I gotta pay bills. I, this is what I wanna do for a living. So I got to figure out how I'm going to stand out in that audition. And literally, this is what you're thinking. It's, it's not even that I'm good enough. People don't even feel they're good enough anymore. They just hope that the producers, that the casting agent, I hope they like me. I hope they pick me. God, I hope I get it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, let's, we're, we're getting towards 
time on this. Let's wrap it up with um, one last question and I'll have everybody weigh in on it. But before we do that, I'm going to put in on another advertisement here. Uh, it's October 8th. Tune in for our next conversation in the arts called Amplifying Voices in the Arts. And where this is what will the discussion will be about, you know, bringing people of color into the arts and an inclusion uh, in the arts. So this is the conversations are just getting started. This is our first one this season. There's going to be more uh, in this as we move forward, but that's going to be another very important conversation to have. But because we're still here, let's just, last question is, um, where do you think musical theater is heading? And if everybody could just weigh in on it, you know, uh, what's the quote you have in your, in your, um, at Plaza, Kevin. Uh, theater is the art form that's been dying for 4,000 years. And it's never succumbed. And it's never succumbed. Right. It was a quote by John, from John Steinbeck, actually. Um, if everybody just has a, a, a last, you know, wrap it up comment about where theater is and where it's heading, you know, positively. Are there positives coming out of it? Oh, uh, absolutely. Musical theater, I mean, I, I, um, I'm a alumni of, of Manhattan School of Music. I went there for opera, studied vocal performance. They had to add a musical theater department. Yeah. So it's it phenomenal. I mean, even at Harlem School of the Arts, where we have the four disciplines, we had four individual disciplines, and now we have to have musical theater where we incorporate voice, acting, and dance together because it's a phenomenal. The children want it. I, I wish that the opera community could figure out what it is that they're doing in the musical theater world that they could kind of take some of it and put into uh, the opera world. But it is a phenomenon right now. Thank you for it's that. And the November talk is going to be on uh, classical music and uh, <laughs> You know, tune in for that one. We're, we're doing them all over Facebook Live, so you can. Um, the others, just weigh in quickly before we go. Well, I don't think musical theater will ever die. It touches people's hearts. It touches people's souls. When you have a, a great book um, and music and lyrics interwoven that are character driven, you can't fail with it. And it is a teaching tool, a powerful teaching tool. It will, it will never go away. What's so frustrating now is, you know, the push with the coronavirus to do things virtually. I've really shied away from that. To me, that's not theater. If that was something I was interested in doing, I would have gone into film production or television production. Um, you need the actor and the audience and the musicians all in the same room and that energy that feeds off, it's so important. It would be nice to come back. People are desperate for it right now. Yeah, Lisa. I, I'm not worried about the, the future of musical theater because as long as there are high schools doing musicals every single year, some twice a year, some whatever, three times a year, it, the, it, the musical will live on. It, it really will. And with wonderful, talented people like John, you know, bringing up the next generation of original music, I, I think it's going to be great and we just got to get this COVID thing over with and so we can all get back together again and and, and do it again and do it so yeah i think it's going to be fine john why don't you bring it on home for us um 
I have a more practical answer. Uh, I would say musical theater is headed towards uh, smaller casts and smaller uh, pit orchestras, definitely, especially with coronavirus, musical theater is going to become local. Well, we all have to be prepared for that. And it's going to have to be, be reimagined. Yeah. That's yes. going to be my question to Kevin as the producer. Do we just lay low for another year till Corona decides she's going to leave us? Or do what do we do in the meantime through the Corona? Because I'm struggling with that right now. Mm -hmm. You know, um, struggling with, okay, I'm going to lay low till this thing is over. But meanwhile, I got to pay my bills. I got to, I, I want to create. I want to do things. And me, I'm that personality of, okay, I can't do it this way, so I'm going to try it this way. And, you know, being of an organization where people are like, well, no, that's not going to happen because people don't have the money and people, people are still trying to figure out what to do with their children. Yeah. So remote learning, even if it didn't work for the four to six-year-olds or even the babies, they've been watching Sesame Street and that was a phenomenon. <laughs> that's very true. So and and the kids have been learning how to sing through YouTube. Yep. So if we don't get... Yeah, in terms of, of instruction and things like that, um, I don't have an issue with virtual learning that way. But... Um, what but about a virtual... There are companies that have been very, very successful doing virtual things um, that have been very, very impressive out here on Long Island. Well, we're very creative people. We should be coming up with very creative solutions. And I, you know, there, there's so much talent in this group here. Thank you all for coming and taking part in this. And I love doing things like this. I could go on for another three hours, but I promise, <laughs> you know, I, I do have time limits and things like that. I hope you will come back and join us uh, for more in the future. John, please let us know when your film score is ready because I bet you could do your project virtually. And I'm, um, I'm really looking forward to hearing it. I don't want to put you on the spot. You know, we'll, that's all right. That's all right. Um, you know, but I, I look forward to seeing all of you in the future. And Yolanda, please let me know. You want to come out someday? Come on out and we'll we'll go for it. So thank you very much. Thank you to our audience for joining us for tonight's conversations in the arts. Um, this has been fantastic. I'm so happy right now. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Yolanda. Thank you, John, for joining us. Thank, thank you to our you. audience for tuning in. Getting a lot of thank yous coming in and comments here. Thank you all very much. Good night. Thank Bye. you for Bye. having me. Good night, everyone. Be safe. Well, be creative. <laughs>